Chapter Five of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume Five by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Five Halleck. In sending General Hunter to relieve Fremont, the President did not intend that he should remain in charge of the Department of the West. Out of its vast extent, the Department of Kansas was created a few days afterward, embracing the state of Kansas, the Indian Territory, west of Arkansas, and the territories of Nebraska, Colorado, and Dakota, with headquarters at Fort Leavenworth, and Hunter was transferred to its command. General Halleck was assigned to the Department of the Missouri, embracing the states of Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Arkansas, and that portion of Kentucky west of the Cumberland River to become the more permanent successor of Fremont. By this division, the government had a special object in view, namely to organize a column which should march southward along the western frontier and by such a march bring about several results, each of them important in itself and of cumulative influence upon the general plan of western operations then in contemplation. It would protect the state of Kansas. It would serve to hold or repossess the Indian Territory. It would, by a comparatively short route, reach and enter the northeastern corner of the state of Texas, where it might perhaps encourage the overawed and suppressed Union sentiment or in the alternative effect a junction with an expedition to be sent by sea and thus hold the lone star state to her federal allegiance but all this would be contingent upon unchecked success it was known that such an enterprise would encounter serious obstacles the confederate government had among its earliest movements reached out boldly to secure the indian territory under shelter of the arkansas insurrection general albert pike with flatteries and promises secured a nominal adhesion of the principal indian chiefs to the confederacy it was perhaps not unknown to him that, with the usual fickleness of savage policy, some of them were making equally ardent and equally untrustworthy protestations on the other side. On the whole, the rebellion had the better prospect of retaining their support, since for the moment it was in practical possession of the Indian Territory, with four regiments of Indians organized as the nucleus of a Confederate army. This, however, was the highest stage of its success. No strong Confederate forces made their appearance. No Confederate battles were won. The promised annuities did not arrive from the Confederate Treasury, and the faith and cooperation of the Indians began to wane. As elsewhere in the South, loyalty to the Union was not wholly extinguished. A loyal Creek chief, Hopo Ithaleo Hola, 
raised the banner of revolt against secession, gathered something over two thousand adherents, and fought several battles during the months of November and December, 1861. It required all the available Indian forces in Confederate pay to suppress and hold in check this armed demonstration in favor of the flag which, for half a century, had brought to the red men the voice of friendship and stated installments of money and goods to redeem the promise of old and solemn treaties. In addition to the danger in its intended pathway, the proposed expedition encountered fatal obstacles in its very organization. Among the earliest calls for troops, President Lincoln had given Senator James H. Lane authority to raise a brigade in Kansas. The regiments composing it contained much of that free and reckless fighting material of the frontier, which had been educated by the Missouri border ruffians to guerrilla methods. The necessity of defending the Kansas border against secession bushwhackers from Missouri kept these regiments at home and continued their predatory habits, and in their rapid forays they often failed to discriminate between friend and foe. Halleck, the new commander of the Department of the West, several times had occasion to complain of their mischief. He protested against Lane's appointment as brigadier general. He not only disapproved the lawlessness committed by Lane's men, but issued orders to drive them from his department, or if caught, to disarm them and hold them prisoners. They are no better, he wrote, than a band of robbers. They cross the line, rob, steal, plunder, and burn whatever they can lay their hands upon. They disgrace the name and uniform of American soldiers and are driving good Union men into the ranks of the secession army. President Lincoln saw that a substratum of personal prejudice lay under this somewhat harsh condemnation, which extended not merely to Lane's soldiers, but to the entire separate Texas expedition as well. Halleck complained of movements having been governed by political expediency and in many cases directed by politicians in order to subserve particular interests. Lane was indeed chargeable with a selfish ambition in this proposed movement and soon endeavored even to supplant Hunter. Lincoln, recognizing Lane's great energy and influence in Kansas, had intended to make it tributary to the Union cause, but he had no idea of giving him the superior direction or management. His letters show with what prudence, but also with what firmness, he interfered to regulate this distant personal entanglement. It is my wish, he wrote, January 31, 1862, that the expedition commonly called the Lane Expedition shall be, as much as has been promised at the Adjutant General's office, under the supervision of General McClellan, and not any more. I have not intended and do not now intend that it shall be a great exhausting affair, but a snug, sober column of 10,000 or 15,000. General Lane has been told by me many times that he is under the command of General Hunter and assented to it as often as told. 
it was the distinct agreement between him and me when i appointed him that he was to be under hunter all lane's efforts to set aside hunter proved fruitless under date of february tenth eighteen sixty two lincoln repeated his decision my wish has been and is to avail the government of the services of both general hunter and general lane and so far as possible to personally oblige both general hunter is the senior officer and must command when they serve together though in so far as he can consistently with the public service and his own honor oblige general lane he will also oblige me if they cannot come to an amicable understanding general lane must report to general hunter for duty according to the rules or decline the service naturally after this lane lost his interest in the expedition of which he had caused himself to be proclaimed the real leader and hero halleck's decided aversion to the whole scheme already rendered it practically useless and other causes soon assisted to divert the forces gathered for the purpose to different destinations it came officially to an end when on march eleventh eighteen sixty two hunter's department was once more consolidated with halleck's henry wager halleck was born in westernville oneida county new york january fifteenth eighteen fifteen he was educated at union college and entered the military academy at west point where he was graduated third in a class of thirty one and was made second lieutenant of engineers july one eighteen thirty nine while yet a cadet he was employed at the academy as assistant professor of engineering from the first he devoted himself with constant industry to the more serious studies of his profession he had attained a first lieutenancy when the mexican war broke out and was sent to the pacific coast a variety of valuable services in the military and naval operations prosecuted there secured him the brevet of captain from may one eighteen forty seven on the conquest of california by the united states forces he took part in the political organization of the new state first as secretary of state under the military governors and afterwards as leading member of the convention which framed the constitution under which california was admitted to the union he remained in the army and in charge of various engineering duties on the pacific coast until august one eighteen fifty four having been meanwhile promoted captain of engineers at that date he resigned his commission to engage in civil pursuits he became a member of a law firm and was also interested in mines and railroads when the outbreak of the rebellion called him again into the military service of the government he had become not only practically accomplished in his profession as a soldier but also distinguished as a writer on military art and science halleck's high qualifications were well understood and appreciated by general scott at whose suggestion he was appointed major-general in the regular army to date from august nineteenth eighteen sixty one with orders to report himself at army headquarters in washington 
A phrase in one of Scott's letters setting forth McClellan's disregard for his authority creates an inference that the old general intended that Halleck should succeed him in chief command. But when the latter reached Washington, the confusion and disasters in the Department of the West were at their culmination, and urgent necessity required him to be sent thither to succeed Fremont. General Halleck arrived at St. Louis on November 18, 1861, and assumed command on the 19th. His written instructions stated forcibly the reforms he was expected to bring about, and his earliest reports indicate that his difficulties had not been overstated. Irregularities in contracts, great confusion in organization, everywhere a want of arms and supplies, absence of routine and discipline. Added to this was reported danger from the enemy. I am satisfied, he telegraphed under date of November 29, that the enemy is operating in and against this state with a much larger force than was supposed when I left Washington, and also that a general insurrection is organizing in the counties near the Missouri River between Boonville and St. Joseph. A desperate effort will be made to supply and winter their troops in this state so as to spare their own resources for a summer campaign. An invasion was indeed in contemplation, but rumor had magnified its available strength. General Price had, since the Battle of Lexington, lingered in southwestern Missouri and was once more preparing for a northward march. His method of campaigning was peculiar and needed only the minimum of organization and preparation. His troops were made up mainly of young, reckless, hardy Missourians to whom a campaign was an adventure of pastime and excitement, and who brought each man his own horse, gun, and indispensable equipments and clothing. The usual burdens of an army commissariat and transportation were of little moment to these partisans who started up as if by magic from every farm and thicket and gathered their supplies wherever they went to quote the language of one of the missouri rebel leaders our forces to combat or cut them off would require only a haversack to where the enemy would require a wagon the evil of the system was that such forces vanished quite as rapidly as they assembled. The enthusiastic squads with which Price had won his victory at Lexington were scattered among their homes and haunts. The first step of a campaign, therefore, involved the gathering of a new army, and this proved not so easy in the opening storms of winter as it had in the fine midsummer weather. On the 26th of November, 1861, Price issued a call for 50,000 men. The language of his proclamation, however, breathed more of despair than confidence. He reminded his adherents that only one in 40 had answered to the former call and that boys and small property holders have in the main fought the battles for the protection of your property. He repeated many times with emphasis, I must have 50,000 men. His prospects were far from encouraging. McCulloch, in a mood of stubborn disagreement, was withdrawing his army to Arkansas, where he went into winter quarters. 
Later on, when Price formally requested his cooperation, McCulloch as formally refused. For the moment, the Confederate cause in southwestern Missouri was languishing. Ex-Governor Jackson made a show of keeping it alive by calling the fugitive remnant of his rebel legislature together at Neosho, and with the help of his sole official relic, the purloined state seal, enacting the well-worn farce of passing a secession ordinance and making a military league with the Confederate states. The Confederate Congress at Richmond responded to the farce with an act to admit Missouri to the Confederacy, an act of more promise at least, appropriating a million dollars to aid the Confederate cause in that state had been passed in the preceding August. Such small installment of this fund, however, as was transmitted, failed even to pay the soldiers who, for their long service, had not as yet received a dime. In return, the Richmond authorities asked the transfer of Missouri troops to the Confederate service, but with this request the rebel Missouri leaders were unable immediately to comply. When, under date of December 30, 1861, ex-Governor Jackson complained of neglect and once more urged that Price be made commander in Missouri, Jefferson Davis responded sarcastically that not a regiment had been tendered and that he could not appoint a general before he had troops for him. From all these causes, Price's projected winter campaign failed, and he attributed the failure to McCulloch's refusal to help him. The second branch of the rebel program in Missouri, that of raising an insurrection north of the Missouri River, proved more effective. Halleck was scarcely in command when the stir and agitation of depredations and burning of bridges by small squads of secessionists in disguise was reported from various counties of northern Missouri. Federal detachments went in pursuit, and the perpetrators, as usual, disappeared, only, however, to break out with fresh outrages when quiet and safety had apparently been restored. It was soon evident that this was not merely a manifestation of neighborhood disloyalty, but that it was part of a deliberate system instigated by the principal rebel leaders. Do you intend to regard men, wrote Price to Halleck, January 12, 1862, whom I have specially dispatched to destroy roads, burn bridges, tear up culverts, etc., as amenable to an enemy's court-martial, or will you have them to be tried as usual by the proper authorities according to the statutes of the state? Halleck, who had placed the state under martial law to enable him to deal more effectually with this class of offenders, stated his authority and his determination with distinct emphasis in his reply of January 22, 1862. You must be aware, General, that no orders of yours can save from punishment spies, marauders, robbers, incendiaries, guerrilla bands, etc., who violate the laws of war. You cannot give immunity to crime." but let us fully understand each other on this point. If you send armed forces wearing the garb of soldiers and duly organized and enrolled as legitimate belligerents to destroy railroads, bridges, etc., as a military act, 
we shall kill them if possible in open warfare or if we capture them we shall treat them as prisoners of war but it is well understood that you have sent numbers of your adherents in the garb of peaceful citizens and under false pretenses through our lines into northern missouri to rob and destroy the property of union men and to burn and destroy railroad bridges thus endangering the lives of thousands and this too without any military necessity or possible military advantage moreover peaceful citizens of missouri quietly working on their farms have been instigated by your emissaries to take up arms as insurgents and to rob and plunder and to commit arson and murder they do not even act under the garb of soldiers but under false pretenses and in the guise of peaceful citizens you certainly will not pretend that men guilty of such crimes although specially appointed and instructed by you are entitled to the rights and immunities of ordinary prisoners of war one important effect which price had hoped to produce by the guerrilla rising he was instigating was to fill his army with recruits the most populous and truest counties of the state he wrote lie upon or north of the missouri river i sent a detachment of one thousand one hundred men to lexington which after remaining only a part of one day gathered together about two thousand five hundred recruits and escorted them in safety to me at osceola his statement was partly correct but other causes contributed both to this partial success and the partial defeat which immediately followed just at the time this expedition went to lexington the various federal detachments north of the missouri river were engaged in driving a number of secession guerrilla bands southward across that stream halleck was directing the combined movements of the union troops and had stationed detachments of pope's forces south of the missouri river with the design of intercepting and capturing the fugitive bands the failure of some of the reports to reach him disconcerted and partly frustrated his design the earlier guerrilla parties which crossed at and near lexington escaped and made their way to price but the later ones were intercepted and captured as halleck had planned colonel davis came upon the enemy near milford late this afternoon reported pope december nineteen and having driven in his pickets assaulted him in force a brisk skirmish ensued when the enemy finding himself surrounded and cut off surrendered at discretion one thousand three hundred prisoners including three colonels and seventeen captains one thousand stands of arms one thousand horses sixty-five wagons tents baggage and supplies have fallen into our hands our loss is two killed and eight wounded on the next day he found his capture was still larger and he telegraphed from sedalia just arrived here troops much embarrassed with nearly two thousand prisoners and great quantity of captured property in anticipation of the capture or dispersion of these northwestern detachments of rebels halleck had directed the collection of an army at and about rolla with a view to move in force against price 
On December 25, Brigadier General Samuel R. Curtis was assigned to the command of the Union troops to operate in the southwestern district of Missouri. Some 10,000 men were gathered to form his column, and the possibility of a short and successful campaign was before him had he known Price's actual condition. But the situation was one of difficulty. The railroad ended at Rolla. Springfield, the supposed location of Price's camp, was 120 miles further to the southwest by bad roads through a mountainous country. Rebel sympathy was strong throughout the whole region, and the favoring surroundings enabled Price to conceal his designs and magnify his numbers. Rumors came that he intended to fight at Springfield, and the estimates of his strength varied from 20,000 to 40,000. The greatest obstacle to pursuit was the severity of the winter weather. Nevertheless, the Union soldiers bore their privations with admirable patience and fortitude, and Halleck urged a continuance of the movement through every hindrance and discouragement. I have ordered General Curtis to move forward, he wrote to McClellan, January 14th, with all his infantry and artillery. His force will not be less than 12,000. The enemy is reported to have between thirty-five and forty guns. General Curtis has only twenty-four, but I send him six pieces tomorrow, and will send six more in a few days. I also propose placing a strong reserve at Rolla, which can be sent forward if necessary. The weather is intensely cold, and the troops supplied as they are with very inferior clothing, blankets, and tents must suffer greatly in a winter campaign, and yet I see no way of avoiding it. Unless Price is driven from the state, insurrections will continually occur in all the central and northern counties, so as to prevent the withdrawal of our troops. A few days later, January 18, 1862, Halleck wrote to Curtis that he was about to reinforce him with an entire division from Pope's army, increasing his strength to 15,000, that he would send him mittens for his soldiers, get as many hand mills as you can for grinding corn, take the bull by the horns, I will back you in such force requisitions when they become necessary for supplying the forces. We must have no failure in this movement against Price, it must be the last. And once more on January 27 he repeated his urgent admonition, there is a strong pressure on us for troops, and all that are not absolutely necessary here must go elsewhere. Pope's command is entirely broken up, 4,000 in Davis's reserve and 6,000 ordered to Cairo. Push on as rapidly as possible and end the matter with Price. This trying winter campaign led by General Curtis, though successful in the end, did not terminate so quickly as General Halleck had hoped. Leaving the heroic western soldiers camping and scouting in the snows and cutting winds of the Missouri hills and prairies, we must call attention to other events of the western department. While Halleck was gratifying the government and the northern public by the ability and vigor of his measures, one point of his administration had excited vehement criticism. His military instinct and method were so thorough that they caused him to treat too lightly the political aspects of the great conflict of which he was directing so large a share. 
Fremont's treatment of the slavery question had been too radical. Halleck's now became too conservative. It is not probable that this grew out of his mere wish to avoid the error of his predecessor, but out of his own personal conviction that the issue must be entirely eliminated from the military problem. He had noted the difficulties and discussions growing out of the dealings of the army with fugitive slaves, and hoping to rid himself of a continual dilemma, one of his first acts after assuming command was to issue his famous General Order No. 3, November 20, 1861 the first paragraph of which ran as follows. It has been represented that important information respecting the numbers and condition of our forces is conveyed to the enemy by means of fugitive slaves who are admitted within our lines. In order to remedy this evil, it is directed that no such persons be hereafter permitted to enter the lines of any camp or of any forces on the march and that any now within such lines be immediately excluded therefrom. This language brought upon him the indignant protest of the combined anti-slavery sentiment of the North. He was berated in newspapers and denounced in Congress, and the violence of public condemnation threatened seriously to impair his military usefulness. He had indeed gone too far. The country felt, and the army knew, that so far from being generally true that Negroes carried valuable information to the enemy, the very reverse was the rule, and that the contrabands, in reality, constituted one of the most important and trustworthy sources of knowledge to Union commanders, a medium of communication which, later in the war, came to be jocosely designated the Grapevine Telegraph. Halleck soon found himself put on the defensive and wrote an explanatory letter which was printed in the newspapers. A little later he took occasion to define officially his intention. The object of these orders is to prevent any person in the army from acting in the capacity of Negro catcher or Negro stealer. The relation between the slave and his master or pretended master is not a matter to be determined by military officers except in the single case provided for by Congress. This matter, in all other cases, must be decided by the civil authorities. One object in keeping fugitive slaves out of our camp is to keep clear of all such questions. Orders number three do not apply to the authorized private servants of officers, nor the Negroes employed by proper authority in the camps. It applies only to fugitive slaves. The prohibition to admit them within our lines does not prevent the exercise of all proper offices of humanity in giving them food and clothing outside, where such offices are necessary to prevent suffering. It will be remembered that the Missouri State Convention in the month of July appointed and inaugurated a provisional state government. This action was merely designed to supply a temporary executive authority until the people could elect new loyal state officers, which election was ordered to be held on the first Monday in November. The convention also, when it finished the work of its summer session, adjourned to meet on the third Monday in December 1861, but political and military affairs remained in so unsettled a condition during the whole autumn that anything like effective popular action was impracticable. 
The convention was therefore called together in a third session at an earlier date, October 11, 1861, when it wisely adopted an ordinance postponing the state election for the period of one year and for continuing the officers of the provisional government until their successors should be duly appointed. With his tenure of power thus prolonged, Governor Gamble, also by direction of the convention, proposed to the president to raise a special force of Missouri State Militia for service within the state during the war there, but to act with United States troops in military operations within the state or when necessary to its defense. President Lincoln accepted the plan upon the condition that whatever United States officer might be in command of the Department of the West should also be commissioned by the governor to command the Missouri State Militia, and that if the president changed the former, the governor should make the corresponding change in order that conflict of authority or of military plans might be avoided. This agreement was entered into between President Lincoln and Governor Gamble on November 6, and on November 27, Brigadier General J. M. Schofield received orders from Halleck to raise, organize, and command this special militia corps. The plan was attended with reasonable success, and by the 15th of April, 1862, reported General Schofield, an active, efficient force of 13,800 men was placed in the field, nearly all of cavalry. The raising and organizing of this force during the winter and spring of 1861-62 produced a certain degree of local military activity just at the season when the partisan and guerrilla operations of rebel sympathizers were necessarily impeded or wholly suspended by severe weather, and this, joined with the vigorous administration of General Halleck and the fact that Curtis was chasing the army of Price out of southwest Missouri, gave a somewhat delusive appearance of quiet and order throughout the state. We shall see how this security was rudely disturbed during the summer of 1862 by local efforts and uprisings, though the rebels were not able to bring about any formidable campaign of invasion, and Missouri as a whole remained immovable in her military and political adherence to the Union. With a view still further to facilitate the restoration of public peace, the state convention at the same October session extended an amnesty to repentant rebels in an ordinance which provided that any person who would make and file a written oath to support the federal and state government declaring that he would not take up arms against the United States or the provisional government of Missouri, nor give aid and comfort to their enemies during the present civil war, should be exempt from arrest and punishment for previous rebellion. Many persons took this oath and doubtless kept it with sincere faith, but it seems no less certain that many others who took it so persistently violated both its spirit and letter as to render it practically of no service as an external test of allegiance to the Union. In the years of local hatred and strife which ensued, oaths were so recklessly taken and so willfully violated that a ceremony of adjuration became in the public estimation rather a sign of suspicion than an assurance of good faith. It grew into one of the standing jests of the camps that when a Union soldier found a rattlesnake, his comrades would instantly propose with mock gravity, administer the oath to him, boys, and let him go. 
End of chapter 5